Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Wild Voices Project podcast with me, Matt Williams. We all need a bit of nature in our lives and this podcast is designed to bring that bit of the wild into your day. It's about the stories of the people saving nature and hopefully they're people who can inspire you. And I also try and cover the strategies and tactics that they've used to be successful in their field as well as talking about some of the most important conservation topics of the moment. And this conversation is no different. Today, I'm speaking with scientist and primate expert Erin Kane. In the course of this episode, we talk about Erin's work on Diana monkeys in the Côte d'Ivoire and her work on orangutans in Borneo. We discuss her research, findings on monkeys, collecting poo samples and how dancing helps her to build up her confidence for field work. And we also cover the cognitive load and impact of sexual harassment faced by many women in the scientific setting and in field work as well. Erin is a postdoctoral research associate at Boston University, and she works with Cheryl Knott on a project examining the life history influences on orangutan feeding ecology in Gunung Palung National Park in West Kalimantan, Indonesia. She completed her PhD at Ohio Ohio State University in 2017, and her dissertation examined the social, ecological and reproductive consequences of seasonal changes in food availability for Diana monkeys in the Thai National Park in Côte d'Ivoire. And if you're wondering why they're called Diana monkeys, then you'll have to listen to the episode. When Erin isn't in a rainforest chasing primates and collecting their urine and feces, She loves doing ballet and spending time with her fantastic cat, Triceratops, who you can also hear about during the course of this recording. This is an extremely funny, informative conversation, and Erin is an accomplished communicator, and I think that really comes across during the course of the episode. The Wild Voices Project podcast is part of a global project called Wild Voices Media, bridging emerging storytellers with aspiring conservation professionals. You can find out more about the Wild Voices Project podcast at wildvoicesproject.org or at wildvoicesproj on Twitter. And you can find out more about the global project at wild-voices.org. And don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes or Stitcher or find the episodes on the Wild Voices Project website. And if you've got the time to leave us a rating or a review on iTunes or Stitcher, then I'd be really, really grateful, and that should only hopefully take a couple of minutes of your time. Right, I think that's everything, so let's dive straight in to this incredible episode about the jungle and primates. This is not the monkey lab, unfortunately. Um, no, this is so the only interesting thing in our freezers. We have a lot of orangutan urine, um, and I just got rid of a chimpanzee foot that somebody accidentally left when they moved universities. 
excellent. Yeah. Always something exciting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there are a few places where I've lived. Yeah, we'll come on to the... Yeah, I've lived in a house with orangutan samples in the fridge. And mm, mm-hmm. I lived in a house with a, with a bittern, uh, which is like a big heron-like wading bird right. in the freezer, like next to our frozen sausages and stuff. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> For a while. Yeah, yeah. So... Uh, yeah, fridges and freezers can be fun in certain certain lines of work. Yeah, you have to be careful. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, um, let's crack on. Welcome to the Wild Voices Project podcast. Thank you very much for joining me. Oh, uh, yeah. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm really excited to talk to you. And I think I'm going to start um, where I often start, which is by asking where your interest in wildlife, nature, the outdoors came from in the first place. Yeah, so... Um... When I was in about seventh grade, I was going through books in the library trying to find something that I hadn't already read or that didn't look stupid. Um, and my dad gave me um, In the Shadow of Man by Jane Goodall, right. um, which is basically she was like a 22-year-old who wanted to go to Africa. And she became um, like Louis Leakey met her and took her off to, um, sorry, to Tanzania to study chimpanzees. And then she, you know, became Jane Goodall. Um, and so I read that book and I was like, oh my gosh, that's what I want to be when I grow up. Um, and so fortunately I had a bunch of very enthusiastic science teachers over the next couple of years, um, who were like, you're a 13 year old girl and you want to grow up to be a scientist. Let's do everything possible we can to encourage this. Um, so I had some really stellar, um, science teachers in school who encouraged me, um, and then here I am, I guess, 18 years later, um, not exactly studying wild chimpanzees, but I think about as close as you can get without actually studying wild chimpanzees. <laughs> yeah, it's close enough. So seventh, seventh grade for us Brits is around the oh, age right, of 12 sorry. or 13, right? Yeah, 12 or 13. Yep. Okay, cool. And what yep. was it about, was there anything in particular about that book or about Jane Goodall's story that like, that made you want to do that? Or was it just the whole thing? Um, I mean, the whole thing was really exciting, but part of it was just that she was like kind of a normal person who, you know, was generally interested in in nature and things. But then she had this totally extraordinary experience. And um, I don't know, the, the passages where she is totally discouraged because the chimps are running away from her. And then all of a sudden she sees this like male chimpanzee who just like sits and watches her and uses tools. Um, Something about that really caught my like imagination and I wanted to travel and I wanted to do something more exciting than live in kind of the medium sized town where I grew up. And this seemed like a good way to do it. Mm, Yeah. And um, I know from reading some of the other interviews that you've done that alongside your, your early fascination with um, science, you started studying studying languages as well which have equipped mm-hmm. you well for your international field work and it was around yeah. around the same age when you started studying French at least right mm-hmm. yeah I, I started taking French um I think yeah the exact same year um that wasn't really with going to you know do research in mind that was just I needed to choose a language and I thought French sounded more exciting than Spanish um but people have often been like you know you live in the United States how many French speakers are you really going to be interacting with on a regular basis wouldn't it be better to speak Spanish and I've used French you know 
I couldn't have gotten my dissertation research done without speaking French. Um, and then, yeah, in college, I was able to um, take Swahili classes. Um, and then that got me invited to go to Kenya with a professor. And so, like, being able to speak multiple languages has only been helpful as a scientist. Yeah. And from personal experience, you know, even if even if the first language that you study isn't necessarily um, one that you end up using tons, it's a great grounding for then going on to study other languages because mm-hmm. you grasp some of the some of the kind of concepts of learning a language. Right. right? Exactly. Exactly. And um, yeah. This. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, you go. I was just going to say, so now that I'm working in Indonesia, um, a lot of people in like big cities speak English, but once you get out to really rural areas, basically nobody speaks English. So I took a couple of weeks of Indonesian classes um, before I got to Indonesia. And then I just was sort of thrown into only speaking Indonesian for two months. Um, and I like managed, um, but people made fun of me a lot for saying kind of ridiculous things <laughs> accidentally. <laughs> um, but then at the end of my trip, I like took a little holiday and went off to a beautiful tropical island. And the bar for, you know, tourists is so low that everybody was very impressed that I could like make myself more or less understood. So in addition to being helpful for science, it's also helpful for making friends in various places. Uh, Bagus Sakali. Yeah. Ah, through coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I lived in Indonesia for a year and I don't know what your experience of Indonesian has been. But um, yeah, I mean, like the, there are layers you know, if you get deep into Indonesian, then there is quite a lot of grammar. But at the start, if you want to just be able to converse with people, mm-hmm. my experience was that it's mostly just a long list of vocabulary. And if you can remember it and right. string it together in pretty much any order, then you kind of make people sense. more or less. Uh... Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot less grammar than, you know, a lot less mm-hmm. grammar than, you know, something like French or Spanish, for example. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was definitely my experience. It was just putting together that long list of vocabulary that you mentioned. And um, the, the, I could... the Swahili thing, I was just going to ask, is that common to be able to study Swahili at college in the US or? Um, it's not common. Um, but I, I mean, I think it's increasingly common that African and African-American studies departments have an African language program. Right. So, um, I was at Washington University in St. Louis um, and had really fantastic professor. Um, and actually, the African Studies Department here at BU, where at Boston University, where I am now, is directly above the Anthro Department, and they also teach Swahili. Um, so I think in a lot of the larger universities, um, you know, they'll have Swahili. Sometimes they have Wolof and Somali and um, Zulu, even. So yeah, I think it's getting increasingly common for people to have those opportunities. Cool. Um, and I wanted to um, I wanted to ask about something which you've just referred to. So you say you're sitting just above the anthropology department. Um, mm-hmm. And I know that you describe yourself as kind of both both an ecologist, but also an anthropologist. Yeah. Um, and I'm really interested in both, you know, in your own words, why, why you see yourself as sitting between those two fields, but also what benefits you think you get from being able to bridge those two fields of science, which people might not necessarily immediately associate with one another. Sure. And it's funny you, you asked that because I was at an event yesterday where I was the only person who wasn't like a biomedical scientist. And they're like, an anthropologist? Are you really a scientist? <laughs> like, are you sure you're in the right place? Do you really belong here? Um, so 
when anthropologists ask me why I am in an anthropology department, even though I'm studying monkeys and apes, um, I like to think about it. Um, so cultural anthropologists are contextualizing human behavior by studying the diversity of humans and, and the things that humans do all over the world and really putting that into a cross-cultural perspective. And so as a primatologist or a biological anthropologist, I'm doing the same thing, just putting it into an evolutionary context. So we can understand modern human behavior and ecology and anatomy um, an evolution by putting us into the context of what our closest um, relatives are doing. So by understanding how Diana monkeys are choosing food or how orangutan life histories evolved, I help understand why humans do the things that we do. Um, so I like being able to provide that broad perspective. And I think that's really a strength of anthropology is that we're studying humans from such a, a diversity of kind of perspectives we can ask questions and answer them from a whole bunch of different angles. Okay, cool. Well, I want to come on in a little bit to some of the specific findings of the research that you've done, but maybe maybe start more at the top of the story. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, your PhD was on Diana monkeys, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> which I'm going to make a little bit of an admission here. When I first came across you on Twitter, I don't know how many ever months or years ago that was, I, mm. I found it a bit confusing because I was like, is this person's name Diana or right? <laughs> like <laughs> what's going on here? Um, but I was wondering if you could tell us uh, why you first decided to study, study Diana monkeys for your PhD, what, what it was that made you choose to focus on them. Sure. Um, so, and I could also tell you why they're called Diana monkeys, mm, if that's Yeah, helpful. that would be great okay. as well. Yeah. All right, cool. So um, Diana monkeys are, to my mind, the most charismatic of the monkey group. Um, so they're these beautiful monkeys. They live in, um, they're very endangered and they live in a very particular part of the world. They live in um, kind of Western Ivory Coast and Eastern Liberia. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, you don't have Diana monkeys. Um, so they are... Um, part of a group of monkeys called the Gwenins, which is basically like kind of a generic fruit-eating monkey. They're like the size of a well-grown cat. Um, and most of the time they're in trees, um, but they're pretty diverse. So you find a couple of different species of Gwenin in every forest in Africa, um, from Senegal to Kenya, all the way down to South Africa. There's probably going to be a Gwenin or two. Um, and so what really intrigued me about the Gwenins is you have these forests where you have multiple species of monkeys that basically if you shaved them, you really couldn't tell them apart. Um, you know, anatomically, size-wise, they're pretty much the same monkey. Um, but the way that they've diversified and the way that they've evolved, they have incredibly distinctive and colorful faces and fur. Um, and so what we think probably happened is you know, like three million years ago, all of the forests in Africa were continuous um, and there was one kind of Ur-Gwenin. Um, and then as climates were changing um, and the forests were drying out, you got these little kind of pockets of forest that became isolated from each other. Um, and so the Gwenins that were in all of these forests diversified. And then when forests became reconnected, um, you had then multiple species that had diversified a little bit um, and so they were, you know, still pretty closely related, hadn't changed all that much, but they had really different faces. And to sort of reinforce the evolution of these different species, um, you get kind of these, these broad or very variable facial colorations. 
Um, so Diana monkeys are in a forest with four, three other Gwenin species. Mm-hmm. Um, so Dianas have like black faces with a white triangle around them. Um, you have Campbell's monkeys, which are sort of yellowish, bluish faced. And then you have two different species of monkeys with giant white noses. Um, and if you shave them, again, they're basically the same monkey. Um, but they do really different things. And so I was really curious about how you get um, kind of a functioning rainforest where you have four species of monkeys that can do basically the same thing, but they're all living in pretty high densities and they're interacting with each other on a regular basis. Um, and so I ended up focusing on Diana monkeys. Um, it was sort of a, it wasn't really on purpose, um, but it ended up being interesting because they're sort of the dominant species of the Gwenins in the forest. So they are the ones that while they're in the group, they do whatever they want. They'll travel wherever they want. They eat the most fruit. And the other species will sort of defer to them and go lower in the forest and they'll eat more leaves or they'll eat more insects. Um, So it was sort of a happy accident, or well, I guess happy accident isn't really the right way to phrase it. But basically when I started my dissertation research, um, I was planning my pilot study. Um, So I was gonna go off to Ivory Coast to figure out what I wanted to do exactly. And the Ivory Coast held um, presidential elections and neither presidential candidate would admit that the other one had won. And this prompted a civil war. Um, And so I wasn't able to go to the field. Um, And that was like, obviously, like not even a blip in the like realm of terrible things that came out of the civil war in Ivory Coast. But, you know, it was frustrating for me because I couldn't go and do my research. Um, But happily... Um, my advisor had a bunch of data that nobody had put on the computer yet or looked at. And um, so he gave me five years of feeding data from these groups of Diana monkeys. And it opened up a whole bunch of really interesting questions that I was then able to follow up on in my dissertation research. That's amazing. And so why are they called Diana monkeys? Oh, right. Sorry, I promised that that was the answer. So if you look at them from the side, they have sort of reddish thighs that bleed in. So their backs are like black and then they have reddish thighs. And there's a white kind of arc that goes down their thigh. And the first European who saw them was like, that looks like a bow, like a bow and arrow kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And of course, the goddess Diana, who is the goddess of the hunt, had a bow, so these must be Diana monkeys. That's Um, pretty cool. I like that. Yeah, it's sort of, I don't know, it's weird, but that is... That is why they are Diana monkeys. Okay, cool. Well, I've yeah, yeah, that's different from any primate naming protocol that I've heard before. Right, so. there are no Skywalker gubbins, but uh. Yeah, well, I don't know if you've listened to the podcast. My friend, <laughs> um, my friend Kaz is going off to to Myanmar and China to research the the Skywalker gibbons, which yeah have mm. uh, have a have a different naming protocol again. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. What did I want to ask? So. Um, so just to recap for my own understanding. So you've got all these different species of monkey across the forests of Africa, which were at one point potentially the same species. Mm-hmm. And they're all, well, now you said that they're mostly frugivorous, so they're mostly feed mm-hmm. on fruit, but some of the less dominant species sometimes turn to leaves and mm-hmm. insects, but they're not mm-hmm. predominantly leaf eating like the langers that you get in Indonesia, which I'm sure we can come on to in a little bit, because I'd like to ask Mm -hmm. about what you're doing in Indonesia. Um, Now, I know that Diana monkeys are endangered. Uh, Are Mm -hmm. the other species of monkey that live in the same forest as them also endangered? And are they endangered simply by dint of 
them having been one species and now diversified so much that the population of that species is just really, really small? Yeah, that's a good question. So Diana monkeys are actually pretty unique in that uh, in this forest and that they're endemic to this part of the country or this part of the world and they're not really widespread. Um, the other monkeys in the forest are more widespread and so Diana monkeys are um, much more vulnerable and they're at a much more lower population density, both because they're only found in this small part of the world, um, but also because they really seem to rely on having a lot of fruit available to them. Um, and so they're less flexible dietarily than some of the other monkeys that are used to adjusting to having the Diana monkeys around. So in, in Ivory Coast um, and, and Ghana and Liberia, um, these are the parts of the world where most of the cocoa that we are eating is coming from. Right. And it's also increasingly where a lot of rubber is coming from. And so there's lots and lots of pressure on the people living there to have productive farms and to get more farmland so that they're able to, you know, plant cocoa or rubber plantations and actually support their families. Um, and so what's happening increasingly is um, forest that's either not protected or that's inadequately protected that was holding um, populations of Diana monkeys and these other monkeys are being cut down um, and converted to either cocoa or or rubber plantations. Um, so in addition to just kind of having a smaller population, um, they're really sensitive to habitat quality and these primary forests are getting increasingly rare. So they're so sensitive because they're not very flexible or adaptable in terms of their diet. Is that the, right? Right. And I should say, you know, there's, there are definitely places where we do have, um, they, they seem to be a little bit more flexible. So there's actually some populations in Sierra Leone that are eating lots and lots of insects and some seeds and stuff, but it's not clear how happy they are and how, um, or how healthy, I guess, they are and how long those populations are going to persist. You know, whether they're sort of relegated to these places and are sort of decreasing um, or they're actually doing well. But it's really hard to do consistent monitoring of these populations in um, places like Liberia and Sierra Leone um, and to some extent Ivory Coast as well because you know, there's um, infrastructure problems, political instability makes it challenging to have long-term research. And then there's also, you know, disease and things like that. So I think and it's challenging. Do we have an accurate estimate of the population size of Diana monkeys? Um, I don't have one off the top of my head. Um, I know that they are, I think, now that, so they've split apart Diana's into two subspecies, and one of them is critically endangered, and one of them is, I think, vulnerable with decreasing populations. Right. Uh, but I don't remember how many there are exactly. And you've said that um, rubber, increasing rubber plantations and cocoa plantations are a couple of the main threats. Do you know whether or not there's any um, current or future prospects of increasing palm oil plantations? Because I know that the oil palm tree... Mm -hmm. originated in western africa yeah. and then has mainly been grown in indonesia and malaysia but there's you know i've read a few articles that there's potentially increasing prospecting of mm -hmm. western africa which is a suitable climate for growing it and there's certainly right. an expanding market for it globally as well right i think a lot of the the sort of available land is already being pretty productively used for right. cocoa and rubber so there's yeah. not really scope for big rubber plantations i'm sorry big palm oil plantations without doing more clear cutting of forests mm. which i think companies are increasingly 
less likely to do um, just for optics reasons. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are lots and lots of palm oil trees and people rely on, you know, people make food with palm oil on a regular basis. So it's certainly something that's there. It's just not being produced at nearly the kind of large scale industrial rate that it is in, in Indonesia. Okay. Um, do you remember the first time you saw a Diana monkey? I do remember. What was it like? Um, it was, well, so I was trying to find a totally different species of monkey in the forest <laughs> and they were being totally uncooperative. And so I was just like walking through the forest kind of aimlessly um, and you hear these vocalizations, um, they, they're really chirpy. They sound sort of like birds almost. Mm. Um, I can't imitate them because I, it would be embarrassing, but, um, I like heard these vocalizations and was like, oh, it sounds like a bird. I wonder what that is. And then I saw this like monkey flying across, you know, the, between the two trees in front of me. And, um, yeah, it was really great. I was, I was so happy. Um, first of all, just to like see them. Um, but then they're also, I mean, they're like the kind of like a classic monkey, right? They're up in the trees, they're bouncing around, they're really vocal. Um, and it was sort of like everything I'd ever like see it in my textbooks, just, you know, in the trees in front of me. It was very cool. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean from the Similar to the Langer monkeys in Indonesia, mm -hmm. yeah, they're, mm -hmm. you know, they're kind of what you expect from a monkey, and they're very noisy right. as well, and they sound more mm -hmm. like, I don't know, I've, uh, I would describe it as more like kind of a witch's cackling laugh. Yeah. Monkeys. <laughs> I think that's probably the closest approximation. Um, well, it's funny, because when I was then in Indonesia, the first time I saw proboscis monkeys, I burst into tears, um, and the guy who was, like, out with me was like everything okay like why is she crying and and my friend is like she's just like happy it's okay those are not she's not upset oh okay good yeah 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 yeah, yeah. i remember yeah i remember seeing proboscis monkeys on on a boat trip yeah i don't mm -hmm. think the proboscis monkeys made me cry but there were certainly some tearful moments just moments of yeah. pure tearful joy mm -hmm. in the jungle because there's nothing mm -hmm. quite like you know growing up thinking i'm gonna go to a jungle one day and then actually ending up there right, um exactly before I get completely carried away by talking about um, the Indonesian jungle, um, let me try and work through my questions about... Um... Yeah, of course, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's my fault. I'm the one getting carried away. Um, so what, um, once you once you taken the decision to study Diana monkeys, what um, mm -hmm. what questions did you then decide to ask about them? What were you, what were you trying to find out? So what people kind of knew about Diana monkeys was that um, the... Females are really aggressive. So I, I should preface this by saying Diana monkeys live in groups where you have one adult male and then like seven to 11 adult females and then their associated offspring. Um, so the males, you know, will vocalize. But when there are intergroup encounters, the females are the ones that are doing most of the encountering. Um, and in most primates, when you have intergroup encounters, you get vocalizations if there's any sort of aggression. Um, sometimes one group will chase another um, but while my PhD advisor was in the field, he actually saw a group of females attack and kill another female. Um, and like, so they were, they like bit her to death basically. Um, and some of the other research had shown that, um, Diana monkeys have much larger canines than you would expect. Female Diana monkeys have larger canines than you would expect for their body size. So there's all sorts of indications that Diana monkeys are like really aggressive 
And so I was expecting that I would get out into the forest and see these like large scale fights on a regular basis. But then when I looked at the, the dietary information, what I realized is that they're basically eating the exact same thing. Like there's no variation between groups. And I was trying to figure out because I was thinking if they're so competitive, but there's actually no difference in what they're, you know, there's no outcome difference, right? Why are they fighting so much if there isn't, if one group isn't materially benefiting over the other one? Right. So despite, despite the kind of reported conflict, um, right. they're still ending up with the same amount of food availability and consumption. Is that what mm-hmm. you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I really, I was curious about, you know, what the context of these fights were, why were they fighting so much? And, you know, maybe they're defending particular trees or maybe they're defending territory. I don't know. I was, so I was really curious about why they were so aggressive. Um, And so I wanted to really understand also the ways that um, changes in food availability affected their social behavior and affected their, um, kind of the things that they were eating um, and their health, right? So we think about um, a a monkey that's relying really heavily on fruit in a kind of seasonal environment. There should be some sort of consequence. Maybe you see more fighting when there's less fruit available. Maybe you see, um, you know, they're they're not as healthy. They're more stressed. Um, So I was just trying to figure out what was going to happen to Diana monkey females when when there is and there isn't a lot of fruit available. And... um... Oh, where to go next? So I know, so I know that with um, this is just me drawing on my experience again, but from yeah. Indonesian species like the monkeys and the gibbons, that we're uncovering things that we didn't really realise were were happening before, like intergroup mating, for example, which was mm-hmm. previously thought of as not a thing that ever happened, and actually mm-hmm. there's been a few anecdotal instances of that happening in the last few years. Is there anything like that with with Diana monkeys, where the interaction between these groups is is often as you say conflict but also sometimes the groups are maybe a little bit more fluid than we necessarily thought or are they pretty insular to the group Mm -hmm. so i think there's a lot going on with the groups um one thing that's interesting is i've never seen a solitary male diana monkey Hmm. um so diana monkeys live in group they have like you know a 50 50 sex ratio at birth right so if you're in groups with one male and seven or eight females that's like seven or eight males that you need to account for. Where are all the males? Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> they might just be really good at hiding and just yeah. not, you know, but I, I've never seen them. And in some species of Gwenans, especially out in East Africa and Kenya, what you have is, um, so they're, they're really seasonal breeders. So all of the females um, can get pregnant at right around the same time. And so if you have one male in a group and a bunch of other males outside the group, that male can't make sure that he's the only one mating with all of the females. So you have these other males that will pop in and mate with the other females. Right. Diana monkeys are also seasonal breeders, but I've never seen any sort of, you know, these stranger males coming in and trying to mate with the females. So I really have no idea where these males are going. Um, and so that's something that I'm still really curious about. Um, what I did get to see, so I think there are a lot of, well, let me think. So one thing that I did get to see several times is males from other groups coming and kicking out the the resident male in the group. And so they'll have some sort of big fight and that male will disappear. 
Um, he'll, you know, lose the fight and then this new male comes in and takes over. Mm. Um, and so I got to see that happen three times in the, the two years that I was doing my research. And so that was really interesting because it's a pretty rare thing to actually get to witness. Um, and in two of the three times, it was associated with a female, with an infant disappearing or being killed. Um, so, so there's definitely, um, or well, I don't want to say definitely, but I think that, that maybe there's infanticide happening, um, mm-hmm. that males are killing nursing, um, males are killing nursing infants, and then that's spurring females to start lactating, or I'm sorry, it's spurring females to start cycling again so that they're able to get pregnant sooner than they would right. otherwise, um, which is something that you see in species like a baboon or um, where the females are sort of always able to get pregnant. Um, but it's kind of rare in a seasonal species. Um, so that was kind of cool. But as far as the intergroup encounters go, um, so I was really surprised at actually how rare aggression is, um, both within the groups and between the groups. When I was reading these papers, I was imagining like every day you have these big fights and people are yelling back and forth and there's canines flashing and it's all very exciting. Um, but actually, they're just, I mean, they're, the, the Diana monkeys are interacting with each other and more aggressive than the other Gwenons in their forest, but they're really not doing a whole lot of social interaction and they're really not doing a lot of aggression, aggression um, especially if you compare it to something like a baboon or a macaque. Um, so there's actually one of the um, kind of the first things that was written about Gwenon social behavior uh, is this woman named Thelma Rowell who wrote... Um, in the like the first book on Gwenons that baboons and macaques are rowdy animals continuously squabbling amongst themselves, making conspicuous gestures of appeasement and reconciliation, lip smacking, presenting, embracing, or mounting one another after a fight. In contrast, the Gwenons are discreet. Um, <laughs> I just love the image of like a discreet monkey. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's true. They're like, I know that there's got to be more going on socially than I was able to pick up on just by watching them because they're constantly vocalizing. Um, yeah. But it's not like watching baboons. It's not like watching langurs where you have like, you know, they don't groom each other a whole lot. They're not fighting. They're not. Yeah, they're just kind of sitting and hanging out. And occasionally things will escalate to a fight. But a lot of the time, even between groups, um, you hear the groups vocalize back and forth at each other, and then they move away without ever actually, you know, clashing um, physically. Huh. That's really interesting. And it's not like you know, it's it's fascinating that um, you know, just going back to the to the missing quote unquote missing males thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not like you, you only spent a couple of days with them. You've been in the forest with them for weeks months even cumulatively i suppose so, yeah i've spent just about two years in the forest and ivory coast mm, wow okay um so what um so i wanted to ask a, a little bit more about what um what the research was like kind of on a day-to-day basis so what were you doing day-to-day what was the setup like where you were living yeah. in the thai forest and i know that um at least one of the things you were doing was collecting, collecting poop and collecting mm-hmm. maybe urine samples as well and why, why those were important um, and what, what you were using those for. Sure. Um, so 
Um, where I was doing research is um, we have an established research station. Um, so it's being run by um, my PhD supervisor, Scott McGraw, and then one of his collaborators, Klaus Zuberbuehler. Um, so it's the Thai monkey project. It's in the middle of the forest. Um, we're able to drive in. So it's about a two hour drive in from the closest village. Um, and then um, there is like a house and um, a kitchen with a propane stove. Um, there's no electricity, no, um, no internet or anything of that nature. Um, sometimes we have running water if the pumps are cooperating. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, um, then from, so when I was there most of the time, it was, I was one of the only students. Um, sometimes there'd be one or two other students, but usually it was just me. Um, and then we have a staff of, um, like five or six Ivorian men who are field assistants who, um, have worked in the forest for a long time and really are kind of the backbone of the project in terms of going out and collecting data on a regular basis. So they're great. Um, but yeah, so every morning I would wake up around like 4.30 or 5 and cook myself breakfast and cook myself lunch to take out into the forest with me mm -hmm. and then hike out to where the monkeys had slept the previous night, um, try to catch them before they wake up around 6 um, and then just follow them all day. Um, I was taking... Um, kind of scan samples so at a particular point in time so like every hour um look and see what every member of the group was doing where in the forest they were where in you know where in the tree um what they were eating what other species were around and some other you know kind of behavioral things and then i was also taking data on um how females were behaving while they were foraging so if they were um how many pieces of food they were putting in their mouth if they were moving between different feeding areas, if there were um, other individuals within a couple of meters of them and any sort of social interaction. So kind of just basic behavioral data. Mm -hmm. But then, like you said, the, the really exciting thing that I was collecting was poop. <laughs> um, so for that, um, I needed to make sure, I needed to have identified individuals. So I would make sure that I knew which monkey I was looking at um, and then wait for her to poop and then collect that. And then I brought that back with me um, to camp every night and I would dry it because we didn't have a freezer or something to, to keep it frozen. Um, and yeah, that was pretty much my day to day. Um, in the evenings when we get back, I would usually cook dinner and then play cards for a while with the field assistants. <laughs> um, I got really, really good. So they have, I don't know if you play Crazy Eights in the UK. I think we maybe, maybe have it. I've not played it. Okay, so they call it Crazy Eights in Ivory Coast is called American Eights, which I was always a little bit insulted by. <laughs> um, but that's like the main card game that we would play. Um, and yeah, so that was what I did every day. Cool. Um, okay, a couple of spin-off questions. What was yeah. the best monkey name? Oh, man. Um, well, I was there is a monkey named Aaron. Um, who I was particularly fond of, oh, nice. but I didn't name her. Somebody else named her, so that was okay. Um, my favorite, actually, we had a male um, who had kicked out one of our resident males, and his name was Mike Tyson. <laughs> <laughs> he came in, and he was aggressive and bit poor uh, Fred, but um, yeah. Nice. Yeah, the names are always a good point of uh, point of mm -hmm. enjoyment. Yeah, a lot of them were were French names. So we had like Veronique, and we had Solange and Helen. Um, 
but then some of them were also named after like students or people who'd worked there before. Um, there's a lot of German students who've been in the forest. So there was like an Inga and a Helga and an Ilka. <laughs> um, so I was like, why is there somebody named Helga? And they were like, oh yeah, she was a student here. So. <laughs> um, and are they, you said, you said they're not quite the same as, um, as long as, are they, because, so in the podcast with my friend Kaz, we reminisce about the day when none of the Indonesian guys were available to follow the Langers for the day. So me and Kaz mm -hmm. attempted to do it. And even when one of the Indonesian guys was around, or it was two Indonesian guys who were much more adept at moving quickly through the forest, very often they would struggle to keep up with the Langer monkeys for an entire day mm. because they're just moving so quickly and it's really easy to lose them. Um, mm -hmm. So Kaz and I were really proud because we managed to stay with them from sort of, yeah, like four or five in the morning through to about six o'clock in the evening. Mm -hmm. And we lost them a little bit during the day, but then refound them after sort of 10 or 15 minutes. Are, there, right. are, the, um, are the dino monkeys fast? Like are you having to race through the forest or is it a little bit more like an orangutan, which is a um, lot slower? Yeah, so they're, I think, they're actually a lot easier to follow than orangutans. Um, uh -huh. They're, yeah, they're pretty slow. They don't have nearly as large home ranges. And they also are vocalizing pretty consistently. So okay. um, between, you know, individuals jumping, um, so you can see they're moving in the trees and then just, like, hearing where they're coming from, um, they're pretty easy to keep track of. Um, and it's also pretty easy to find groups um, because you can just listen for them calling. Um and I didn't really appreciate how much of a luxury that is until I was trying to find very quiet, solitary orangutans. Surprisingly quiet for something so big, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. Um, and I wanted to come back a little bit to the, to the samples you were collecting. So, <laughs> yeah. um, so all this behavioral data and the samples you were collecting, which, correct me if I'm wrong, you were you were using to look at levels of various hormones and mm -hmm. cortisol, which is a, a stress hormone. Um, all of that data, I suppose, was building up the picture, which you were talking about earlier, of how are these animals responding socially and biologically to the availability of fruit going up and mm -hmm. down at different times mm -hmm. of the year? Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, that sums it up pretty nicely. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, yep. <laughs> I guess I should say, too, in addition, so, yes, I was collecting the behavioral data, I was collecting data on what they're eating, I was collecting the fecal samples, and then using that to look at hormones, um, and then I was also collecting data on um, the abundance of particular tree species in the forest, and um, how frequently they were producing, you know, fruit and flowers and leaves. Um, so, all told, I think I measured about um, 6,800 trees in um kind of the home ranges of my monkeys, identified them, GPS them, um, and then monitored them to varying degrees. Wow. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Having done tree that's, tagging as well, that's, um, yeah. yeah, wow. It was a lot. It was a lot. <laughs> yeah. But, but useful data to have to overlay with the, the data from the monkeys, I suppose, really yeah, useful. Absolutely. Yep. Um, so another element that I wanted to ask about was, um, that I know that for myself, you know, going into that kind of setting, living there, working there was, um, 
you know, was pushing pushing boundaries for me. And I don't really mean mm-hmm. like in the sense of, you know, oh, I'm scared of spiders or snakes and I have to live in a jungle where there's lots of spiders and snakes around. But I mean more pushing kind of physical and mental boundaries for me and, you know, mm-hmm. overco- overcoming, I don't know. Yeah, overcoming things and doing things that I didn't necessarily think I was capable of. Um, was it similar for you? Did you have to overcome fear or push boundaries? And I was also wondering how, whether or not... Um, you know, studying foreign languages where you have to put yourself in a situation where you can often sound up, end up sounding stupid or I know you do a lot of dancing in your spare time, whether, whether those things kind of help to prep you for overcoming fears or obstacles in your field work. Yeah, I was a really timid, shy, scared kid. Um, like I was terrified of heights, like wouldn't climb up stairs that you could see through the back of, um, I would like go to the basement in thunderstorms because I was convinced that it would like yield tornadoes. Like I didn't talk to people very much. I don't know what my parents thought I was going to do with my life, but probably going off and studying monkeys in a jungle is not what they anticipated based on my like (laughs) um, personality when I was a kid. So Mm. a lot of what I was, I've been able to do, I think is really pushing past things that really freaked me out. And, you know, as stupid as like, oh, my gosh, I have to cross over this like rope bridge to be able to get to the field site. And it's tall and over, you know, so stuff like that was like actively, you know, pushing me past my comfort zone. Um, But it's also true for a lot of the times that I've been in the forest. I've been um, often um, one of the youngest people in the forest, often the only woman, often usually the only American or the only white person. And so I spend a lot of time sticking out and, you know, being really hyper visible. Um, And so that's been an interesting place to be because it does give you the opportunity to sort of push past those boundaries and, and um, yeah, get over the things that seem scary. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. It's been been an interesting experience in a lot of ways yeah I know what you mean like I wasn't particularly physically adept as a kid I was Mm -hmm. terrible at sports like Mm -hmm. you know um cross country was my absolute worst nightmare I couldn't even like run a mile when I was you know like in high school Mm -hmm. like 15 16 so then putting I knew that it would be really tough putting myself in that situation and it's things like you know climbing into a narrowboat without making it capsize and right. walking along a single plank, uh, you know, bridge over the water into the forest base camp and all that sort of stuff is, yeah, is, um, is pushing boundaries and doing things that you didn't necessarily um, think you were capable of. Is there, mm-hmm. is there an added element for you, whether that's in field work or in science, being a woman? Is that something that you found has added a spin on it or not really? Yeah, it it definitely has had an impact. I think really every woman field worker I know has various hashtag me too stories. And so that's, you know, that's been an inescapable part of every field experience I've had, starting from being an undergrad and going to Kenya with my supervisor to, you know, coming back from Indonesia two weeks ago. Mm. Um, So you know, I don't really want to get into any specifics, but no. I think it's worth saying, um, you know, when I compare my experience doing field work um, and, you know, trying to convince the guys I was working with that I wasn't going to sleep with them or, you know, 
getting street harassment or, you know, any of those things. And when I compare my experience and my kind of research output with my male friends, um, we've had a very different um, time in the field. And I think that comes out in the ways that we're able to be productive or not. Right. So there's a thing called mm -hmm. cognitive load, which is just kind of the, the background things that you have to think about. And so, um, you know, my best friend did his research in Kenya, also on monkeys, and he would go out after his, he would come back from the field and go out and play soccer every night and, you know, go and grab beers with his field assistants. And it was just this like totally positive experience. And he decided to stay in the field for another couple of months because he was having such a good time. Um, and that was not at all my experience. And I love my field work and I love the guys that I work with, but I ended up leaving my dissertation research, my first field stint, um, like three months early because I was just tired of the constant sexual harassment. I just was like done. Um, and so then, you know, that had an impact on the data I was able to collect and how focused I was able to be in the forest. Um, and, you know, going back and analyzing data brings up all sorts of different, you know, memories that are coming back from different days. You know, this is when that happened or whatever. So, um, yeah, it's definitely um, had an impact on me and the research that I've conducted. Um, and I think most women who are doing fieldwork have similar um, kinds of things that have happened. Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure I can add much. I'm really glad that you've shared that. And I think, you know, there's a, you know, there's an incumbent duty on, on men who are going out and doing that fieldwork to try and yeah, make those environments less like that if they can. Yeah, yeah, and I should also say, I mean, I think it's easy when people are going off to, you know, Ivory Coast or Kenya or Indonesia or Peru and saying, you know, these are conservative environments and, like, of course, you know, the locals are being harassing or whatever. Like, it's it's easy to think about it as a problem that happens in the field. But, you know, it's not just been field work. It's not just been, quote, local people and it's not just been... Um, in field work. So I think it's something that really as scientists, we all need to think about in every venue where we're doing science. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's not just, yeah, you're right. It's not just out in the field. It's also back home on home soil. And it's not just when you're out in the field, it's not just the people who are out there. Sometimes those problems get taken out there by, you mm -hmm. know, by the men who, who go out there. And that's where the situation comes from. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But on balance, I mean, you know, all of that aside, I wouldn't trade doing field work for really anything else. I mean, I like being back in the forest is my absolute favorite thing. Just being out and, you know, seeing everything and hearing everything. And even on days where you're, you know, bored because the monkeys are sleeping all day, you're like, oh, my God, this is awful. They haven't moved in, you know, four hours and the ants are biting me. And then you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm in the middle of the forest. There are like four different species of monkeys and I'm currently being bitten by army ants. Like this is actually phenomenally cool. Um, <laughs> it so is it freaking kind of, cool, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it balances itself out. <laughs> like my reaction when I first got attacked by fire ants because I accidentally like, you know, crouched down in a fire uh, line yep. of fire ants was like half, ow, that's really freaking painful and half like, Oh my god, that's so cool! Firearms. <laughs> yeah, and there's definitely like machismo is not really the right word, but there's like no. an element of one one upsmanship in like field stories, and so mm. like I have some good stories about the crappy like you know animal related things that have happened to me, and I can all like I can horrify 
you know, the archaeologists who work in South America, or I can horrify the like the biomedical people are like, you did what? Like, <laughs> the ants were where? <laughs> <laughs> You've had malaria how many times? So, yeah. Um, I love it. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I want to well, I want to ask about that. So, um, so I want to come on and ask about kind of some of the more the more positive and special experiences that you had. But I did also want to ask about kind of hashtag fieldwork failures or you know <laughs> some of the, some of the things that have gone wrong that have taught you important lessons or maybe even just some of the amusing um, <laughs> the amusing things that have happened that have happened during your fieldwork, whether that involves animals or or other things as well. And with the fieldwork podcasts that I've had so far with some of those episodes this has always produced um often produced good bathroom related stories yeah <laughs> there are definitely some of those yeah. well i learned so um there are no leeches in the ivory coast yeah. um there are leeches in indonesia and i learned very quickly that you have to be very careful while you're peeing in the forest that yeah. was um but I had an army ant problem as well because I didn't realize that my shirt was trailing in like an army ant line. And so then I like, so anyways, not worth getting into, but army no. ants are not my favorite thing. Mm. Leeches also. Um, as far as feel, well, so one of the things I really wanted to do with my dissertation was understand um, kind of the stresses of reproduction on females mm -hmm. and like lactation because that's a huge energy expenditure, right? You have your supporting a fetus and then you're nourishing it once it's a, an infant um, and so ostensibly females who are pregnant and then nursing are really like pushing their bodies to the limit and they need to take in lots and lots of energy so I get there and I'm all set to collect my data on pregnant females I only had two females give birth and one of the babies got eaten by a chimpanzee Oh. <laughs> all right well I guess that's not happening <laughs> I was so mad and I was like yes it was very sad that the infant was eaten by a chimpanzee yeah but also like honestly like <laughs> you really have to come and eat the one baby that was born in this group <laughs> um yeah so you know that I feel like that wasn't my fault so much as the chimpanzees no um, but so, yeah stuff's unpredictable and yeah, yeah. <laughs> um I don't know. I had a lot of just sort of generic foibles. Um, I'm really short. I'm like five foot two, which I, it's short. I can't think of what it would translate to in centimeters. Oh, we do, we do feet in inches here. Oh, all right. Yeah, well, yeah, then yeah. You, yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm, five I'm, five, I'm five, five. So I'm, I'm also okay. pretty short. But my field assistant is well over six feet tall. <laughs> And so if I was following him, he would be, like, vaulting over things that it would take me, like, minutes to, like, scramble over. And then he would, like, turn around and be like, where are you? Like, you know, why are you so far behind me? And I'd be, like, struggling to climb over the, like, log that he had just, you know, walked over easily. Um, but then in Indonesia, I was so tall because mm. all of the men that I was working with were, it was, it was amazing. I've never felt tall before. So that was kind of fun. Yeah, I know that feeling. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think. I've made some embarrassing language blunders. Um, some of them are a little bit PG-13, I guess. But Oh, that's okay. I think the podcast is, the is podcast PG-13. Yeah. Okay. All right. So um, one of the guys that we were working with in Kenya, um, I developed a terrible crush on him. 
he was like a couple years older than me. He was very nice. He was very patient. And he was showing me how to find fossils and stuff. And so we were driving in the back of the truck, um, getting, you know, back from a day of prospecting for fossils. Um, and it was really dusty and he started coughing. And so I meant to, or I wanted to ask him afterwards if his chest was okay. Was this so in I, French or? In Swahili. Oh. And so I said, Jean-Marc, fua? Or I meant to say, fua, which means, how is your chest? And instead I said, faru, which means, how is your rhinoceros? Which is <laughs> the exact euphemism that you would expect it to be. Um, and so all of the Kenyan men, like, you know, are exploding with laughter. Meanwhile, it's just me and my advisor. And he's like, why is everyone laughing? Why is everybody laughing? And so then they explained it to him. And I've never been like redder in my entire life. And so that was the end of my crush on Jean-Marc. And I was very upset. Oh dear. Yeah. Sometimes language is more dangerous than the creepy crawlies in the, in the forest. True story. Yeah. Excellent. Um, on the on the flip side, are there any kind of particular moments with wildlife that stand out as really special memories to you? Yeah. Um, so, you know, this past trip, um, so I was in Indonesia for the first time. I'm working on orangutans. And so I got there and I was out looking for orangutans and I was just like probably two weeks of going out in the forest by myself walking for like eight hours a day and I would hear things moving and I would like run to where they were and it would be a gibbon or it would be a langur. squirrel. Yeah or a squirrel. (laughs) There are a lot of squirrels in Indonesian forests it turns out and some of them make noises that sound like maybe they could be orangutans. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so I was just like I was so discouraged Um, and you know, I only had a finite amount of time in the forest and I was starting to feel like, you know, what am I doing here? If I failed at finding primates, like is everything I thought I knew how to do, you know, is this all a lie? Um, and then finally, one of the other field assistants found an orangutan. And so I went out to follow them the next morning. Um, and so we got up at three and we went out and we left camp at 3.30 and camped underneath their nest um, and... Um, the sky started getting lighter and then this little baby orangutan popped its head over its mother's nest and just like stared at me. And I was like, oh my gosh, they're real. Like, it's not all a lie. I found (laughs) orangutans. They're here and I can study them. And it was like, I mean, orangutan babies are like weaponized cuteness. So that was, (laughs) you know, pretty wonderful in and of itself. But it was just like, you know, being in a forest and actually succeeding in in finding, or well, somebody else succeeded in finding, but then I didn't lose this baby orangutan um, and then its mother, and then just spending the whole day watching the two of them sort of wander around doing their thing was like that was very very cool. Mm, yeah, um, yeah. Number one on the squirrels. Yeah, there's so many squirrels in Indonesian forests. It's so mm-hmm. annoying. I think. So because I've been a bird watcher since like the age of five, I've got a reasonably mm. good ear f- for stuff in woods, you know, even just from woodlands and forests in the UK. So I think that helped a bit because because uh, I picked up a lot of stuff that right. um, other people weren't picking up. But nonetheless, a lot of it still turned out to be squirrels. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely relate to 
to that feeling from some of my orangutan experiences, you know, that that feeling of, oh my gosh, they're real. <laughs> Having seen them on TV and imagined them and then actually being there and like, oh, there's an orangutan in that tree in front of me. Right. It's just kind of takes a while to get your get your head around. And then I completely agree about baby orangutans being weaponized cuteness. One of my favorite um, <clears throat> orangutans that we followed was the mother Feb and the infant Theo. Theo was about three years old. Mm-hmm. And so he was like, he was, you know, trying to trying to show that he was a big male orangutan. And so if you were following them and you got a little bit too close, he'd kind of shake the trees at you oh. and throw sticks. And I got peed on by him once, which is <laughs> definitely one of my proudest moments in life, being peed on by an orangutan. Like, mm. that's, that's definitely up there. So, yeah. Yeah, I can relate to all those things. Um, before, before we hop on to Indonesia, so I just wanted to... Um, ask about the outcomes of your work with the Diana monkeys and what um, what some of the results were from your from your PhD study and what yeah what what those results tell us about about the monkeys and perhaps about I don't know whether or not they have implications for how we might conserve them or protect them from yeah protect their status from diminishing yeah so um, I was really going and expecting to find Um, especially with the hormones that I was studying, expecting to find Mm -hmm. big differences in the ways that they're behaving at different times of year when there's different amounts of fruit available and in the ways that, you know, and how stressed they are. And I actually didn't find that at all. Um, There were fluctuations in stress, um, at least in terms of hormone concentrations, but it seems like that was mostly due to reproduction rather than to anything that had to do with the environment that they were in. Hmm. And so what I started to think about was the fact that these monkeys are dominant in their forest, right? They're they're doing better than the or they're they're making the other three monkeys in the forest that are closely related to them sort of get out of the way um, yeah. when they're around. They're doing what they want to be doing, and they're living in a primary rainforest, um, which is you know incredibly abundant in fruit. Even at times when there's not a lot of fruit, there's still. So what what I think is happening is that the Diana monkeys are competing with each other to get kind of a territory that's as robust as possible. Mm-hmm. But then within those territories, they they don't compete with each other. They don't compete within groups for, for resources. They're able to spend most of their time eating in these gigantic fruit trees that can support an entire group of monkeys feeding in them. And so they're just not really affected. Um, hmm. But where I think the conservation implications are is that, so there's sort of a threshold, right, where you can be stressed, but if you, you know, stress is an adaptive thing, right? You need to be, you, your body can respond to a certain amount of stress and return you to sort of your baseline levels, right? Mm -hmm. It it doesn't become a problem until you're really, really, really stressed all the time. Um, And so I don't know where exactly on that threshold the Diana monkeys living in this primary forest are. But I can pretty much guarantee you that the Diana monkeys living in these degraded habitats um, or in forests that are being converted to cocoa plantations, that they're either at that threshold or they're already so stressed that it's having a negative, con- um, negative consequences for their reproduction and, and for their overall health. So I think this research was able to show that Diana mon- you know, monkeys will be happy and do great. Um, they're adapted for these you know, primary rainforests, and they have all sorts of strategies to make sure that they're not 
too stressed, that they're able to eat what they want to eat, um, and that they'll do fine in these primary forests. But it's really important to focus on those those degraded habitats and to think about the ways that you can improve habitats where things aren't necessarily as fantastic, right? Keeping population numbers up in these habitats so you have lots of, you know, genetic diversity um, and and really focusing on on maintaining connectivity between fragmented forests so that you have places for for animals in general to go when things get problematic, when things get bad and there is not a lot of resources is going to be how you keep populations viable. Mm. And those elevated levels of stress hormone, if they're above that particular threshold in these, in these mm-hmm. bits of forest where they're particularly under pressure, that will, as you say, affect things like breeding and it might, would it have an impact on health and potential vulnerability to disease and those sorts of yeah. things? Yep, absolutely. So one of the things that happens when you have elevated cortisol is that your body sort of redirects its um, resources to particular um, tasks that would be really important in like a short term kind of fight or flight situation. So Mm -hmm. it does things like suppress um, immune systems when you have really high um, cortisol levels, it suppresses digestion and reproduction. Um, And so yeah, if you're constantly stressed, you're vulnerable to things like disease. Um, Yeah. And how does this sit back within that wider framework of anthropology and understanding human evolution? Yeah. um, So when we think about the ways that primate social behavior evolved, um, and then like by extension human social behavior, we're often thinking about something like a macaque or something like a baboon that's living in these big social groups with lots and lots of fighting, um, and you know those not at all discreet animals. <laughs> um, but it's important that if we're, we're coming up with some sort of one, you know, grand unifying theory of why primates behave the way that they do, which theoretically, you, you know, you want some sort of explanatory body of theory. We can't ignore these kind of discrete monkeys who are coming up with other strategies in these rainforest environments, mm-hmm. especially if you think about the fact that, you know, you go back 25 million years ago to the last common ancestor of, you know, modern um, African monkeys and modern great apes, um, they were in rainforests. So understanding what's happening to these primates living in rainforests, eating lots of fruit is really fundamental to understanding kind of the evolutionary pathway that humans ended up taking. Cool. So what So what has that led you to be um, focusing on in Indonesia? I'd be really interested in exploring that a bit more, given, yeah. given my own connection to it. And were you in is it Kinapatangan you were in, in West Kalimantan? Or I was I in Ka- Katapang is the closest. Uh, Katapang, sorry, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, you're good. Every Indonesian thing has, like, so many syllables in it. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, so, so really the questions that I was interested in asking with my dissertation research were understanding how primates cope with variability in their environment. Um, and there's really no environment more variable than these forests in Indonesia, because the way that the forests work, you have these massed fruiting events where, you know, the majority of the trees in a forest will produce lots and lots of fruit um, kind of at the same time. And then for the next year, three years, five years, nothing is producing fruit. And then all yeah. of a sudden you have this big flood of fruit again in the next masting season. 
Um, so I was really excited. I'm working as a postdoc um, on a particular grant that's trying to understand um, why orangutans have such long childhoods and relate that to um, this really unpredictable fruiting um, in Indonesian forests. Because their childhoods, for people who don't know, are sort of, well, I, depends how you're defining childhood, but they stay with the mother for seven or eight years, right? Right. Yep. So that's the longest juvenile period of any primate. Mm. Um, and a lot of the time when we're thinking about why primates have such long childhoods compared to other animals, we think about, you know, they're really social. Um, and so they live in these complex social systems where you have to, you know, know where you are in the dominance hierarchy and all that stuff. But orangutans are basically solitary. So these long childhoods can't be explained by, you know, fitting into a social system. It's got to be something else that helps explain why they have such long childhoods. Hmm. And are you much nearer, are you nearer the start of this research? And if so, maybe, maybe you haven't got any kind of conclusions or results yet, but what are some of the, what are some of the questions you're asking and what, what's, what was your methodology? What was the, what kind of data were you collecting when you're out in Indonesia um, just recently? Yeah, so this is a grant that um, the research has been underway for about a year. Um, so I've been part of the project for a little bit less than that. Um, but we're asking, we're really comparing um, the behavior and ecology and like health and digestive processes of um, juveniles and their mothers um, to see how um, adult females are coping with the same things that juveniles are coping with. So we're looking at things like um, how stressed they are, whether we have evidence of um, ketones in their urine, so you can see whether they're metabolizing their fat stores mm -hmm. to get kind of a sense of energy balance, um, looking at digestibility of fiber, um, looking at how efficiently they're chewing things, um, how they're processing different foods, and seeing if, as we suspect, females are doing better or adult females are, are kind of more competent at dealing with times when there's not a lot of fruit available. And so what we're, we're trying to see is if, um, you know, these periods of low fruit availability are particularly stressful for juveniles. And so maybe they have these long childhoods because it gives them multiple periods with lots and lots of fruit available. And so they're able to sustain growth and development um, when they have all of this excess you know, fruit and excess calories that they can take in. Um, so there's this thing called the ecological risk aversion hypothesis, um, which says that basically growing slowly is kind of a risk averse strategy when you're in um, an unpredictable environment. Mm -hmm. Because if you go really quickly, um, you might get too big for um, kind of either your fat stores to support you or for the food around you in your environment to support you while you're growing. But if you grow slowly and sort of incrementally, you'll always kind of be able to sustain yourself and you don't have to, you know, if you pack turning into a 400 pound orangutan into five years, um, that's a lot of energy that you need to take in. But if you can spread that process out um, and, you know, have these have multiple periods where there's lots of fruit available, um, you're probably not going to starve to death at, you know, by growing too big too fast. Are there, so, so you, you think this might be what's happening with juvenile orangutans. Are there other species mm -hmm. where we know that that ecological risk aversion hypothesis is actually playing out in reality, maybe in slightly different ways? But That's a really good question, um, and I, I do not know. <laughs> okay. 
Cool. Yeah, I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me. I mean, um, so it's imp- so kind of the the other important component of that is that you need to be in an environment or you need to be an animal that has low predation risk. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't be surprised if maybe elephants have um, that's part of elephant mm-hmm. strategy yeah. or maybe yeah. whales. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm really not sure. Um, okay. Yeah. And um, when you were there, you've just been there for a couple of months, mm-hmm. right? Um, was it a masting season? Was it a non-masting season? What kind? It of was th- a non-masting season while I was there. So, what kind of things were the orangutans feeding on while you were there? Lots of insects. So they're going through and like breaking open termite nests, um, bark, leaves, um, unripe fruit, seeds. Um, there is some fruit but not really um, soft and squishy and easy to process fruit. So it's fruit that you have to work really hard to open and chew. Um, So yeah, they're definitely, I mean, they're spending a lot of time eating things that just don't seem like they would be particularly nutritious. Um, But there's not anything else really around for them. Um, So one of the things that I'm doing as part of this postdoc is I'm helping do nutritional analyses on the foods that they're eating so that we can actually see, you know, how many calories they're taking in and how much of that is from sugar or fat or protein at any given time. Mm. But, um, yeah, so my my supervisor, um, Cheryl Knott, has done a lot of really um, kind of the pioneering work on orangutans and ways to figure out how stressed they are and, you know, what energy balance they have. Um, So... We know, for example, that juveniles um, have much lower, they're, they're digesting fiber much worse than adults are. Um, and so when you're eating a high fiber, sort of leafy, barky diet, um, adults are able to extract a lot more energy from that diet than the juveniles are. Yeah, I think, uh, I think I've been like cc'd on maybe the odd email when i was out in indonesia with cheryl like there were mm-hmm. some connections between the organization oh, cool. i was working with <clears throat> cheryl i guess because there's you know there's a limited community of people out there researching right. orangutans, so they kind of they kind of still know each other mm-hmm. um so you've talked about seeing seeing the baby orangutan for the first time in the nest and you've you've mentioned the proboscis monkeys as well were there any other you know did you come across any other wildlife? Were there any other particularly good moments that you managed to pack in during during your yeah. two months? Yeah. So actually, the coolest thing that happened, like even cooler probably <laughs> than the orangutan, um, I was out with two Indonesian students, um, and we were just like walking around trying to find an orangutan, and we heard squirrels making these horrifying noises, um, and so, you know, there there was something going on, and we could see movement in the branches, and then all of a sudden. Um, a leopard cat like ran down a tree with a squirrel in its mouth and it like stopped when it saw us and stared for maybe like 30 seconds and then as soon as one of us moved to like try and grab a camera it ran off in the other direction um but yeah there was a leopard cat that was hunting directly in front of us and that was really amazing that's incredible yeah yeah Yeah. it was the coolest yeah that's yeah (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> cats is like cats are like. I wouldn't ever have expected to see a cat in the yeah. in the jungle. Like, yeah, completely nocturnal, or you're assuming mm-hmm. they're completely nocturnal, and you just, yeah, you know, I've you know, spent yeah. 
like I said, two years in the forest in Ivory Coast. I've seen one leopard. And this was literally my second day of being (laughs) out looking for orangutans. And I was just like... Holy crap! Uh, it was amazing. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I'm really, I'm really, gl- I'm, I'm really happy for you that you had that experience. Uh, like, thank you. yeah, like, you know, the Indonesian jungle has a lot to offer. I hope you go back and see. I'm assuming you're going to be going back at least, at mm-hmm. least a couple of times and see lots yep. of other amazing things. Yeah, uh, that's, that's the hope. I'm planning to go back in the fall. So. Cool. Yeah. I wanted to. I wanted to ask. Um, uh, about so earlier you talked about the camp that you were you were living in in the Thai forest and mm-hmm. um, how how it feels when you're completely cut off like that no electricity no internet no phone signal what what that feels like yeah I mean on the one hand it's totally freeing right um, mm. because I was just by myself um, I mean not by myself I had the other guys but you just like there are a lot of things that you just can't keep track of. And so you're totally immersed in being in the forest. And that's really cool. Um, I did have a um, like a shortwave radio. So I would listen to BBC World Service in the mornings when I was like making myself breakfast. It was like I had, you know, well-spoken British friends who were keeping me informed. <laughs> it was great. Um, but yeah, I mean, by necessity, you just you know, it's just you in the forest. And I ended up reading a lot. Um, I had a Kindle with me um, and, you know, wrote a lot and got a little bit of work done in terms of trying to write my dissertation. But it was really, um, I don't know, it also takes a lot of trust and kind of mutual respect on the part of the people that you're leaving behind. Um, You know, I would speak to my parents maybe once every two weeks while I was there if I would go out into the forest or out into town um and so it was particularly hard for my folks because like all right I'm gonna go back into the forest now in the middle of the ivory coast in moderate political instability and I'll tell you you know I'll see you in two weeks um and so so you know I really appreciate the fact that you know, my folks and my family and, you know, my boyfriend have been really, like, just, you know, it's okay that I go off into the middle of the forest and I'm sort of incommunicado for long periods of time. Mm. Um, It was nice in Indonesia. I was able to send texts from camp. Um, (laughs) I didn't realize that I ran out of um, cell phone credit, though, at one point in time. Yeah. And so it was the rainy season when I was there, and um, there's a, this river that runs right alongside camp. And so the river started flooding, and I texted both my parents and my boyfriend. I was like, oh, wow, the river is flooding. This should be interesting. And I didn't realize <laughs> that I had then subsequently run out of cell phone credit. Yeah. And so then I thought I was sending texts that were like, oh, you know, didn't flood too terribly, no problem, and all of these other things and nobody was receiving them. So the last text that my parents and boyfriend got from me for a week was, Oh, it looks like the river is flooding. This should be interesting. <laughs> and then they didn't hear from me for a week. <laughs> um, and so when I got like out of the forest, I had like 
Facebook messages and like multiple emails and just like every possible way that they could try to contact me because I had just totally disappeared. And as far as they knew, I had been swept out to, you know, sea in this flooded river. Because oh <laughs> those, I don't know if you're on like one of the, one of the like basic Indonesian Nokia phones, which I don't think <laughs> alert you when you've run out of credit. Exactly. You have to like, you have to like text a number and then it texts you back with what credit you've got left. So if you don't do that, you don't know how much credit you've got left, right? I think exactly. I'm remembering that yep, correctly. Yep, that's correct. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. Eventually I was like, wow, I haven't gotten any texts in a while. I wonder what's going on. <laughs> then I realized. But yeah. I, yeah. I was, um, where I was based, I was lucky in that um, camp was about a, well, from the from the house in town, it was about a 30-minute ride in a Bemo, which is like a little minibus that you can kind of commandeer um, to the nearby fishing village, then a sort of 20-minute boat ride in a Klotok, which is a narrow boat across the river, and then like a 10-minute walk down the planks of the boardwalk into camp so mm-hmm. we were we were fairly we weren't that far from civilization i mean when you got over to the other side of the river it felt like you were in the deepest mm-hmm. reaches of the jungle but actually you were only sort of 45 minutes from an airport that connected to jakarta um but you had decent phone signal in camp and um <laughs> because of the time difference <laughs> um you know at night in camp was basically the middle of the day back in the uk mm-hmm. so there was one night where we we had a party in camp and I, you know, I was quite drunk and I was like, I'm going to ring my grandparents from the jungle. <laughs> <laughs> so I phoned my poor grandparents and it was like the middle of the day in the UK and I was like, I'm in the jungle. I think it was probably quite obvious that I was a little bit drunk. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I don't mind it that much because it's nice to have that sort of like distance every now and then. Mm. Um, and it was nice not to have to follow the, or not to be able to follow the U.S. political stuff yeah. as closely right now. Um, but when I was in Ivory Coast the first time, um, I like I hadn't realized that anthrax is endemic to the forest where I was working. Oh, um, yeah, it is. It turns out, hmm. um, and. So you're supposed to be really careful when you're picking up skeletons that you find in the forest. And I had just found a pangolin skeleton. And the pangolin had clearly been eaten by a leopard. It was the coolest thing. There was wow. like leopard scat and like piles of bones that had been gnawed on and a big pile of um, scales from the pangolin. Mm-hmm. And so I collected the whole thing just like in a plastic bag and brought it back to camp with me. And then the guys were like, you wear a mask, right? And I was like, no. And they're like, and gloves, right? And I was like, no. And they're like, well, I hope you don't have anthrax now. And I was like, oh, my God. I hope I don't have anthrax either. And I really wanted to Google, like, anthrax symptoms, but I was in the middle of the jungle and had no internet. And so I was like, well, I don't know what the symptoms of anthrax are. I hope that I don't have them. And then I, like, I got a really bad cold the next day. And I was like, maybe this is anthrax. Oh and I was like, <laughs> It turned out it was just a cold and I didn't okay. have anthrax, but I was much more careful in the way that I was collecting specimens from, from that point on. So it's a, sorry, just, so it's a plant or? It's a fungus. Ah, and so, right. Okay. Yeah. And so there are spores um, in, that just like hang out in the forest, I guess. I didn't even know that. You did have malaria though, right? Yes. 
several times. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. I kind of got away without that one. In fact, I got away without anything too nasty. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. 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 Um, I recommend if you get malaria, get treated in a tropical location where they're used to treating malaria. Mm, okay. Um because it will be much quicker and you won't have to explain how you got malaria nearly as many times. (laughs) (laughs) I was in the hospital for about a week in the U.S. because I I was really sick when I actually figured out that I had malaria. Um, And it was like every day, like three or four different groups of med students would come by my hospital room and be like, so tell us about malaria. Because it turns out you don't get malaria a lot in hospitals in Ohio. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, I definitely appreciate the BBC World Service thing as well when I was because our our camp had um, had no internet had a little bit of phone signal and we only had electricity for about three or four hours at at Mm -hmm. night so when I was back in town one of the things that I would do to kind of you know reconnect with feeling at home on BBC Radio 4 there's this serialized soap opera about um about a british village where most of the people are farmers so mm-hmm. it's like the most it's like one of the most stereotypically Brit- british thing ever yeah exactly so i would listen to that like omnibus you know like editions of the of the podcast of that and that would be my like ah reconnecting with britain <laughs> <laughs> when That's i was really back funny. in town because you can't get tea in indonesia so i couldn't drink mm-hmm. tea so uh yeah there was there was a little element of reconnecting with britain um so the reason that i asked about how it feels when you go into camp and you're cut off is because i also wanted to ask um uh um you know, what the importance to you is of communicating about everything that you do, because you are not just a prolific, but also a very eloquent and funny communicator about everything that you do via Twitter. And I know that you do talks and you've done some other interviews and people have listened to this podcast that will clearly come across to them as well. So from one extreme of kind of being completely cut off from the ability to communicate what you're doing to the outside world, you're also extremely adept at that. And I wanted to ask why that's important to you in your own words. Well, I appreciate that. Um, I I definitely feel like I'm prolific. I don't know how adept I am. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, so part of it is just like, you don't really know what's out there as, you know, a person existing until you can hear about people actually doing it. And I feel like I have like, I'm incredibly privileged to get to do the science that I do in the places where I do it. And so I feel like I have some responsibility to like, let people know that this is both an option for something that you can do. And, you know, I get to go off to Indonesia and Ivory Coast and I get to experience all of these things. And so I want to have other people sort of be able to share those experiences as well. Um, so I hope, you know, like the video of leeches crawling all over me or whatever is something that people can sort of live vicariously through to some degree. Um, I also think it's really important for, you know, kids in science and especially like girls who are interested in science to see that there are people who are, you know, were girls who are now adult people doing science. Um, and so one of the things that I've found is 
kids and you know girls in particular really like the like the weird gross kind of funny things about science right so talking about um why i study monkey poop um is something that you know 11 year old girls think is really cool um and talking about malaria or bot flies or leeches like these are ways to get people interested in the sorts of environments where um you know i'm going and studying things um and it's also nice because I do spend a lot of time kind of isolated um, to cultivate a community of other people who are having these kind of similar experiences that we can then, you know, be in the UK and England or in, in the US and, you know, Australia and New Zealand and Indonesia and Ivory Coast and be chatting with each other about the things that are going on. So I, I appreciate it on a bunch of different levels. Nice. I think... I think that might be a really nice note to wrap things up on. Um, yeah. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about or that I haven't asked that you thought I was going to ask or anything at all that, that you want to cover that we haven't? No, I think that that's, uh, that seems like everything for me. Cool. Did you want to talk about your cats at all? Oh, I mean, I can mention my, ca my cat, Triceratops. They yeah, they have such good names. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> Triceratops is by far the greatest cat in the world. Nice. Um, she was, um, so I got her, she was um, actually one of my undergraduate mentees, um, has a barn cat who had kittens. So I got um, Triceratops from this girl who's now defending her PhD in several months, which is totally crazy. But um, so Triceratops is like a normal sized cat. She was like, you know, cat-sized and then I went off to Ivory Coast for a year and my ex like fed her a lot because she was sort of despondent and now she's like a 16 pound cat <laughs> <laughs> and she like she loves people food more than anything so she's living with my parents now since I'm in Boston and sort of moving back and forth to Indonesia and all of these other things mm. um and so my parents will, you know, text me and be like, Triceratops bit your father while he was trying to prevent her from eating his ice cream. <laughs> or like, um, Triceratops stole several bites of salad today. So she's, uh, yeah, she's my favorite. <laughs> so to circle back almost to the beginning, Triceratops is probably bigger than a Diana monkey. Yeah, she's definitely at least comparable in size. <laughs> Hey. She's much less agile. <laughs> uh, excellent. Okay, I think that really is a really good note to end on. Um, okay. Cool. Okay. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you so much. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation, and you can find more of them at wildvoicesproject.org, on Twitter at wildvoicesproj or by subscribing to the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks very much, and until next time. <laughs>